0: Well, one of one of my mistakes that I made is I think last week which question did I do number eight when I was supposed to do nine so today is ten right is that correct did I get that right I got the catechism question wrong because I had not done it the week before last week so um, please forgive me if I messed you up and you you got confused about which question you're supposed to be on this coming week will be will be question number ten last week was question number nine um, and that that was. <laughs> Uh, well, I can't even remember the question number 9 now so what was question nine? what does God require in the first second and third commandments so would anybody like to try to do question number 9 anybody want to try to do question number 9 to recite that for us if you didn't get thrown off by me completely does so anybody want to do that at all alright so let's, let's get back on track this week is question number 10 let's, let's recite that together what does God require in the fourth and fifth commandments let's recite this together today fourth That on the Sabbath day, we spend time in public and private worship of God, rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. Fifth, that we love and honor our father and our mother, submitting to their godly discipline and direction. All of God's commandments require God's ability, but for those who place their faith in Jesus, there's hope that we can actually begin to keep his commandments because he's fully kept all of the commandments that we should keep. Turn your Bibles to Judges 21. This is the last chapter in the book of Judges. Some of you are relieved. It has been a dark time for some. Some people are like, man, that's really dark. But you know what, it's actually produced really good fruit in my own life. I don't know about you, but as I've gone through Judges, I've seen my need for God more. As I've gone through Judges, I've seen my propensity to become complacent with sin, my propensity personally to kind of accept sin, to normalize it, to live amongst it, to not root it out, to not get rid of it, my acceptance of my own remaining sin and idolatry. And so I've realized that, that I need to put away those things. And so it's been very good and it's also given me a longing ...for the King, and I hope it's produced those things in you as well. And as we read this last chapter, it's meant to heighten our longing for the King. It's meant to heighten our awareness of our need for the King. And so, that that couldn't be a more Christian message, really. Our awareness of our own need is is something we're discussing as we go through the Saturate Field Guide each and every week. And our awareness of the satisfaction of our deepest need in Christ... And then our longing, not just for the king to be reigning and ruling in our lives now, but for that one day future reign. And that's what we look forward to. So as we read, have those things in mind. This is a mess still, and it ends in a mess. But there is hope in our mess. Let's read God's word. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and they said "O Lord the God of Israel why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel and the next day the people rose early and there built an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and the people of Israel said which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord for they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah saying he shall surely be put to death and the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother and said one tribe is cut off from Israel this day What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord of Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead were there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is laying with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not yet known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Rimen and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive, the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem to the south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards. and watch, and if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to the number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. God, we need you. Lord, we need you to, to make sense of the mess of This book, we need you to make sense of the mess of our own lives. But God, thank you that you do. You bring your word. You bring clarity. You bring hope. God, I pray that we would long for you to be our king. And, And Lord, I pray that even as... We walk through this message that that you reveal those areas where we don't submit to you as our king, and so that, Lord, we would submit to you. Lord, would you bring good fruit, not just from this message, but from the whole book, we pray. God, do this by your Holy Spirit. Empower all of us to respond to you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For about the past six and a half years or so, I have been meeting regularly with uh, a guy who is 83 years old uh, his name is Dave and he is a, a mentor a coach or whatever you want to call him he disciples me still I'm still in need of discipleship at 50 years old and I'm really grateful that I get to talk to Dave each and every month it's, it's been a really great practice it's been an investment but it's been good it's been rewarding it's been been fruitful in my own life And I've learned a lot of things from Dave. He's got a lot of years behind him at 83. He's been a Christian for probably 70 of those years at least. And he's been in ministry longer than I've been alive. I've learned a lot from those who've gone before me. And what I've realized is there's not been anything really earth-shaking that I've learned. There's nothing kind of groundbreaking there's nothing brand new there's there's nothing that's like wow this is some brand new insight that I've never seen before instead what I've learned from Dave is that I need to go back to the old paths I've discovered novelty isn't what I needed I need to be continually applying and reapplying the simple tenets of the faith at least simple in, in, in terms of, of understanding, not simple in terms of actual application because really the Christian life is simple and yet exceedingly hard. You know, we start off every, every time we share about what God has been teaching us. I share a little bit about where God's been leading me. He shares where God's leading him. And then through our times, it's reinforced really the conviction that I just need regular habits and patterns. Some might call them disciplines regular habits, some regular patterns to, to lead me into godliness and to keep me close to God on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. I need to be on guard. I need to be vigilant against sin that remains within. And it's funny, you think that as an, as an old guy who's walked with the Lord for so many years that he doesn't struggle with the same things, and yet I find often when I share my own heart, he's like, yeah, I struggle with that too. I still have these things I'm seeking to put to death. But by God's grace, I've grown in them. And there's hope, and that actually gives me hope that, that I can continue to grow, even though I might not ever be completely free of those things in this life, I, I can grow in him by God's grace. And it reminds me, I still need to daily admit sin to seek to root out idolatry that remains and seek to worship God. You know, Dave, he's, he's nearing the end of his life, and, and Lord willing, by the end of, end of April, he'll be with us. And I hope the things that I've learned from him live on in me and in his others. And as I, and as I get older, I realize that, that, the things that I, I, these basic things are the things I really need to be passing on to the next generation so that they can thrive in their relationship with God, so that they can know God, so that others after me might walk with God and be who God made them to be in his image and glorify him through those things. And as we come to the, the end of the book of Judges, I think about just how brief some of the decline is. Because they didn't pay attention to some of the simple things. They didn't pay attention to some of those simple key things in the Christian life. That, or in knowing God, they, weren't, they, weren't, they didn't know Christ yet, but they, they knew God. And they knew these same truths they knew that they needed a daily go before god in prayer they knew they needed these daily disciplines to remind them they knew they needed to pay attention to what was going on in their lives to to do away with idolatry to put away sin to fight sin in their own lives to to get rid of idolatry in the land they knew these things but they failed to practice them they they weren't overly complex things that they were told to do they were hard but they weren't complex they were simple even though they were hard And yet what we see is in just a generation, at the very beginning of the book, you know, Joshua's coming in and he comes into the land and he puts people in charge. And then within a generation, they failed to pay attention to some of these basics. They failed to pay attention to not complex things, but things just as simple as knowing God, knowing his word, saying no to sin, worshiping God being who God had made them to be in his image. And so I find as we come to the end of Judges that, that really there's, there's lessons for all of us to be learned here and really Judges is an expose of the human heart. It's not, it's old, but it applies today. It's old, but they had, those old people in that day have the same struggles that we have today. They became complacent they lived comfortably with sin. They failed to eradicate it. They failed to practice those normal disciplines of grace. You know, by the end of this book, things were in disarray. But they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't get there by accident. They got there because they didn't pay attention to some basic things. They got there because they had given in to sin, become complacent. You know, this normally, I, I like stories that end with a happy ending, I, I, like, I like a good fairy tale. Now I, I'm not into you know, some of the princess stories and things like that. I don't mean that. But I like, it, I like it when stories wrap up nicely and there's a happy ending. I don't like depressing stories. I don't like depressing movies. I hate depressing books. I want something that's going to be uplifting. Why? Because life is like this. It's often messy. It's, it's not a fairy tale. And, and the Bible doesn't try to, to paint our lives as if it's a fairy tale. Because the Bible is very real and it speaks to real issues in our lives, the civil war between Benjamin and Israel in the previous two chapters it had broken out for a good reason. Actually, it broken out because of the injustice that was carried out against one woman and her abuse and murder, and that was good that they responded. But here's how it ends. It ends with the same people who responded to the injustice against one woman, to the murder of one woman, and how do they respond? They do what's right in their own eyes by killing women, by committing injustice, and they justify it on their own. How, how do we end up here? You come to the end of Judges, you're like, how, how do we get to this place? How do we get to this place? What can we learn how do we what are we supposed to take away from this? Because it's really confusing, and it's messy, and there's some moral ambiguities in this last chapter that we're meant to wrestle with that's meant to make us uncomfortable. And I think that's part of the benefit of the book of Judges, that it's it does, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us question our own selves. It makes us question how are we living? How do things end up this way? There's much to learn. And one of the first things you can see is that, is that they were led by what felt right. And that's, that's a theme all throughout the entire book. And that's actually the epitaph of the book of Judges, as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But at the very beginning of this passage, it kind of reiterates that idea that, that they, it was easy to be led by what felt right. It's easy to be led by what feels right. And, and I think you've experienced this in your own life, at least I have you know what, I, I, don't, I don't feel good about that decision. Sometimes actually that's um, because it's difficult and I don't want to experience the difficulty. And, and sometimes decisions that are clear in God's word, I, feel, I don't feel peace about because it's difficult, because it's hard. It's, I know it's going to mean challenges and my feeling shouldn't be the guide there. Ultimately what's in God's word should be our guide. Oftentimes we can make the other mistake of I'm going to do what feels right because I, I think this just seems right in my own eyes. It feels right, it feels compassionate, it feels kind. And sometimes we can actually endorse the sin of others by doing what feels right in our own eyes. You know, you, you look at the very opening of the passage and talks about the, the men of Israel, they made a foolish oath. They made an oath that we find out when they gathered in Mizpah, we didn't know this before from the last chapter, but they made an oath. That none of them would, not only are they going to wipe out Benjamin, but now none of them are going to give any of their daughters to be wives to those in Benjamin. So they create their own problem. Why? Because they're mad. They were mad and driven emotionally. They made a bad oath out of their anger. You ever, you ever say something bad? You ever say something you shouldn't? You ever, you ever make an oath in your anger? We're all prone to that, and that's what they did. They make an oath in their anger. they are be led by their emotions. You know, emotions can be good, but it's never good to be led by them. They lead us into trouble, and so that's what they experience. They made this oath based on their anger. And then, and then in verse 2, they get together, and it seems actually, it seems very good, right? They get together, they weep bitterly. Now, they should weep over the sin of Benjamin. They should weep that, that they had to endure such consequences because of sin. And that should draw them to, to seek God on their own, to, to wait for God, to seek his mercy themselves. And they go to bed, They go and they, they foolishly had sworn not only would they not give their daughters a marriage, now they're emotionally led. They've they devoted half, most of the tribe of Benjamin except for 600 people to destruction. And that was actually the right thing to do because the people of Benjamin had not only defended sin, they embraced sin and they fought for those who were sinful. And so God actually commanded them three times to wipe them out. They they didn't fully. They didn't fully obey, actually. They didn't fully wipe them out. They didn't fully obey God. And so they're sad. They're weeping. They're they're grieving over what was done to Benjamin. And that's good that they're grieving. But how they respond is they're being led emotionally. And you can see that both in verse 6 and verse 15. It says they had compassion on them. But that compassion was misplaced. It was misplaced compassion was understandable it was sad that the whole tribe would would be left to die off as if and nothing would be done to help them but it wasn't the kind of compassion that moved them to take the cost on themselves it was the kind of compassion that they weren't willing to give anything up on their own they weren't really willing to sacrifice on their own they just they felt bad they could have repented for the rash oath if they really had compassion they could have repented for their bad oath to not give any of their daughters. And they, said, they could have said, you know what? Whatever God is going to do to us for us breaking our oath, we're willing to take that on because we truly want to love them. But they weren't. They weren't willing to, to take the cost themselves. They weren't really compassionate. Instead, they, they tried to take matters into their own hands. They swore they wouldn't give their daughters, and so they come up with this terrible, merciless, brutal plan. And then in verse 15, somehow they justify their atrocity that they've just committed in J.B.S. Gilead, and they're about to commit more atrocities, and they justify with having compassion on the Benjamites. And you can see that in in verse 15, it says they had compassion because the Lord had made a breach. And that second part of the sentence is important. God had made this breach, and it was good to be sad for them, but they also should have realized this is from the Lord and not let their emotions lead them to make even more foolish decisions you know sometimes today people can justify the immoral behavior of people who are close to them out of compassion you can accept the immoral behavior of others and and you think it's compassionate but it's never compassionate to accept sin it's never compassionate to make people think that their sin is actually okay that it's okay to live in a sinful state that's actually not compassion that's hatred it's good to grieve over sin. It's good to grieve over the effects of sin. It's good for us to grieve and then motivate us to, out of compassion, share truth and love people. Love them where they're at, but not love their sin and not endorse their sin. And yet they seem to be doing that. Because think about this. These people, uh, these Benjaminite people, they, they had defended and fought against Israel, defending sin, defending idolatry, defending the same kinds of things that went on in Sodom. And it's not like a, a long period of time has passed. This is probably just a couple days afterwards. They haven't changed their character. These, these 600 Benjaminites haven't changed their morals. They haven't changed what they believe. They haven't changed what they practiced. And so the people of Israel, when they're compassionate towards them, are actually endorsing their evil behavior. We're called to love people, but it's not by agreeing and supporting them in their sin. It's actually uncompassionate. It's not truly compassionate, loving to support and condone sin to enable sin. It's not loving to justify sin based on the grounds of compassion. Yes, that's what we see they're doing. But we're we're easily led that way too, aren't we? Because it doesn't feel loving sometimes. In some churches, they avoid church discipline because they think, well, it's, it's not very kind. It's not very nice. You know what's worse is leaving someone in their sin. Not caring enough about them to rescue them from potentially walking away from God permanently. And the grounds of compassion we can be capable of condoning and overlooking all manner of things. They were led into sin by what felt right. They were led into sin by their emotions. And then we see in verse 3 that not only that, that when they go to God they're kind of blaming him. And it's easy to blame God for our own sin. And sometimes we can do that because God seems distant. Why, God, are you so hard? Why do these things happen? But they actually know the answer to those things. They already went to God and three times God says go up. They know why this has happened. Because the Benjaminites were condoning, embracing, supporting, defending, fighting for sin. They know that they had refused to rid themselves of idolatry. They know that they've given into the practices of the land. And so when they, when they go to God, they, they almost blame him. They say, you know, oh God, why has this happened in Israel? But they, they know that answer. But they're acting as if they're clueless. As if they don't have any responsibility. They're saying, why should there be one tribe lacking? Well, because that tribe was sinful. And yet they're blaming God for their sin and the sins of others. And here's the thing, they get up the next day and you think, well, this is really holy. They get up and they build an altar and they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. But they don't wait. They don't wait for God's response. They're like, God, why is this happening? It's so confusing. Instead of taking them as word and actually remembering what he had just spoken. And he explains why this has happened. They, they seem to blame God. And then they move on from God. It happened because Gibeah had committed a great evil. It happened because Benjamin didn't correct it but embraced and protected the evildoers. It happened because God commanded that they rid themselves of this sin. And their questioning here of God wasn't noble; it was offensive. When they ask God why I'm blame shift, they weren't willing to wait for His response. And I, I know how about you? When, when sometimes it seems like God's not answering, and we don't get the answer fast enough or the way we want, we don't like the answer He's already given. We move on. We move on. God's too hard to understand. I don't understand why this is happening. Maybe God's being unreasonable here. I've got to figure things out on my own. That's what they do. They try to solve the problem on their own. And it's really easy to try to solve our own problems. That's what we see in verses 5 and 8 to 14 and 16. It's, it's easy to try to solve our own problems. And that's what we're tempted to do. You know, not surprisingly, God doesn't respond to people complaining and questioning his justice and his character. We find that in their emotion. They hadn't made one, but they made two rash vows. And now they've got to figure out, And instead of repenting, instead of saying, you know, God, how did this happen? Well, part of this happened because their oaths were to blame. God never told them to make those dumb oaths. And they're trying to figure things out. So they, they try to figure out, how do we, how do we supposedly maintain our integrity and, and keep our oaths and yet make things happen so that we can be compassionate? And not only did they swear they, they wouldn't give wise to Benjamin, but I find out they took an awful oath and that was anybody who didn't gather with them at Mizpah would be killed. Now, now God had not said that. God didn't say, hey, if there's any of the towns that, that didn't come to join you, then you should kill that whole town. And yet they tried to solve their own problem in their own way. They weren't waiting for God. They weren't looking to God. They weren't actually basing this on what God had commanded. This isn't God-given commandment to wipe out the people of Jabesh Gilead. But they ask around. They try to solve their own problems, figure things out in their own way. And, and how often do we do that too? We make things a mess at times. God gave us brains, but there are to be brains in submission to his word. Brains in submission to his will, brains in submission to how he leads us and guides us, primarily through his word, by his spirit. So they ask around, they're like, hey, um, any of the people, any of the towns, any of them not show up? Somebody must have been, like, yeah, I didn't see anybody from Jabesh Gilead. And they're like, oh, man. And then they said, they sent 12,000 of their bravest men. I don't know how brave they were to go and do such a horrible thing. And they, they told them to kill everybody men, women, and children. And, they, and they, they come up with their own solutions. If they really thought that Jabesh Gilead was worthy of a ban because they hadn't obeyed God's command way back to Joshua when it says that the people of Manasseh, which is where Jabesh Gilead was, if they, they, could, they could dwell on the other side of the Jordan River up north as long as they came to the aid of Israel and that they didn't. They suffered the consequences. But if they really thought they deserved punishment for that, then they would have wiped them out entirely. But see, they're trying to solve problems in their own way trying to figure like how do we how do we both like punish them and also like make things work out for us because we made these stupid oaths. And so they kill every everybody but they leave these 400 young virgins but then they realize, oh man, we we miscalculated. There's 600 guys. And, and so they were willing to do what was absolutely brutal to solve their own problems. They, 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 they easily did those things. They, they made peace with the remaining Benjamites. Instead of, you know, I, I, when it says that they sought God, it says, then the children of Israel said. They didn't say God said. The people of Israel said. And they, they tried to create their own solutions to the problems they'd made. They made peace with the Benjamites. They shouldn't have made peace with them. They weren't repentant. They gave the young women to the Benjamites. What a, what a, what a terrible tragedy these young women had seen their entire family slaughtered and then they're given to these awful people these awful men and it's easy to get to the place where we can be led into sin by what we feel is right blame God for our sin try to solve our own problems or our th- sin through, through more sin it's, it's like when you lie and you tell a lie and you try to cover that lie up but with another lie and you try to Make yourself, because you're trying to solve your problem that you should have just repented from in the first place. And then they make other people pay for their sin. They make other people pay for their sin. And it's easy to make others pay for our sins. Or at least it seems to be. You see, they weren't willing to sacrifice themselves. They weren't willing to take the hardship on themselves. They weren't willing to break their own vows and take the consequences for breaking the vows on themselves. Instead, they were like, well, we certainly can't do that, and so we've got to figure something else out. And so they made others pay. They weren't willing to take the hurdle themselves. They weren't willing to give up their own daughters. They weren't willing to break their vows. They made the residents of Jabesh Gilead pay this terrible price. They slaughtered them all. And they saved the girls who were convenient for them to save. And then they come up with this horrible plan at the end. Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was at the time, where the the tent of meeting, where the the Ark of the Covenant should have been kept, and for some reason it was in a separate place, but where they gathered together in worship at Shiloh. What that also meant was, at Shiloh, there were a lot of Levites and a lot of priests. Because that was where the worship of God was to take place. And so they think, hey, well every year we're all supposed to go up to Shiloh for... I don't know if it was the Feast of Tabernacles or what it was for because we don't see any of those feasts declaring that they should have um, young women dancing, but there were young women dancing for this feast. And so they come up with this scheme and it, they're trying to make somebody else pay for their mistakes. They're not willing to pay, so they make the residence of Gilead pay. Now they're willing to make the daughters probably of the Levites and the priests pay because probably justifying that because they didn't go up into battle because they should not have. And so they command the Benjamin knights to, to lie in ambush. They make them pay, they make the people of Shiloh pay. They make these young women pay. They make their families pay. They're not willing to take the hurdle themselves. And they command them to lie in ambush, and when the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance the dances, they're come out of the vineyards and snatch them take them back to the land of Benjamin, and that's exactly what they do. and They they even plotted how they would respond to the complaints ahead of time. They foresaw that the people in Shiloh would complain, that their their dads and their brothers would complain. They knew the kind of response it would generate, and so they came up with an excuse to make them pay. You know, maybe it's because you guys didn't, you didn't go up with us. Well, they're priests. They weren't supposed to. But they said, you know, well, well, we're, we're going to do this so that you don't break your vow. Because if you gave up your daughters, then you'd be breaking your vow. So this is a convenient way because we never said that the women couldn't be stolen. So they said, you know, if, if just let them have your daughters. And that's what these immoral men of Benjamin do. They steal somebody else's daughter because it was perfectly acceptable to them. They hadn't changed in their character. If they were righteous men, they would have said, no, we will not do that. We won't steal daughters. Will repent, maybe court the daughters of the towns around them. But instead, they they greet us because these aren't righteous men. And now, human trafficking is condoned by the leaders of Israel. It's a mess. They make the people of Shiloh pay a terrible price, and and then they justify their own sin. And that's what we see at the very end, that they're just justifying their own sin. And it's easy for us to do that as well too. It's easy for us to justify our sin based on how we feel, based on explanations, based on all of the reasons why this is an okay course of action and it has nothing to do with what God says in his word. And it's easy to justify our own sin. In verses 5 and 7, they justify their own sin by saying, well, we made a vow, we can't break it. We don't want to go back on our word. Instead, they should have repented of it. They put to death their own kinsmen, and they justified that because they didn't want to break their vows. They seemed to justify it as if it was somehow keeping their integrity, never mind that it was a sinful vow to begin with. They, They come up with these horrible ideas. They were willing to commit a gross injustice against hundreds of families in Israel all to keep their own hands from getting dirty. And they justified their own sin. They even, they even plotted about responding and justified that and say, well, you know, God will understand because we just promised that we wouldn't give them. But stealing is okay. All those things come easy. They seem easy. But it doesn't solve anything. And In the end, we see that they really all of these things are just doing what seems right in their own eyes, living by their own emotions, living by their feelings, to protecting their own interests, blaming God, blaming others, turning things around on other people, into living for themselves, living by what seems right. And then in the end, everybody goes back home like everything's okay. But it wasn't right. It wasn't okay. And you're meant to be unsettled. They just were like, well, let them have your daughters, and we're just all going to go back home. We're done. And if you're reading this accounts, hopefully it's disturbing for you. Hopefully you're asking, how can this happen? How do we get here? Hopefully you're also reflecting on the fact that the judges isn't too different than the world we live in today. How do people get to be so evil? How do we get to have all these problems in the world? How do people go so far? How did a nation that in some ways was founded on godly principles just walk so far away from those things? And how can it happen so quickly? How can a nation just in the last even 15 years go so dramatically astray? How have things become so immoral so quick in just a generation? Even in our own country, just a generation? Now, we've, we've always been immoral in one sense, but, but they've gotten worse. How does that happen? How does it happen so quickly? I think it happens when God's people become complacent with sin, and they become complacent with sin in their own lives, in their own midst. How about you? It happens when God's people forsake the old paths of knowing God, of obeying His word and worship. And it's easy to do. It's easy to have a hundred different excuses, a hundred different reasons. It's not a legalism thing. This is like because our hearts are so easily drawn away by everything around us. And we need to regularly feed on his word. We need God. Not out of duty, but because he's our food and drink because he's everything. We need God or we go astray. They become complacent. They've forsaken the old paths. They left those daily habits and patterns of, of godliness. They acted as if they didn't have idols, You know, that maybe they thought, well, we're God's people now. We have Yahweh. We don't really have idols. Something that's been helpful as we've gone through the Saturay book is saying that, you know, there's some remaining idolatry. I'm not going to ignore it, act like it's not there. I'm not also going to focus on it, but I'm going to say, hey, look, where can I root out remaining idolatry so I can put it away, so I can put it to death? So I can then put on Christ. You know, imagine if the people of Israel in Judges... And, and in part, they were doing this. They continued to, to act like they were worshiping God, but they didn't put away idols. And those idols became a stumbling block. Ignoring idols and just worshiping God alone, is—it's not, that's not the answer. They don't really, it's not real worship. They put up with sin. They ignored sin in their midst, and they failed to fight sin. And as we think of our own lives, you know, how do we view sin? How do, we, do we put up with our own sin? Do we ignore it? we fail to fight it? When they fought sin, they were only willing to go so far. They avoided doing things that caused them discomfort, doing things that were challenging. They avoided taking hardship on themselves. Putting sin to death is costly because it's death. There's a daily dying. When Jesus says, take up your cross daily, that's what he's talking about, putting to death our own desires, putting to death those things of the old man that remain does us to fight sin, to flee idolatry. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14. I think we have it on the overheads for you. It talks about the fact that that, that no temptation has overtaken us. That's not common to man. The temptations we experience are not uncommon. They're the same ones we saw back then. But it says, but God is faithful, he will, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with every temptation he'll provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. And then it says, in response to that, therefore, my beloved, these are Christians being commanded to flee idolatry. This isn't something that has to do with just once you become a Christian, you've already flooded out, no, we have to ongoing basis... Put away sin, realize there's temptations, and flee idolatry because recognize we have idols. Don't ignore that. Recognize it because we have to know where we're tempted so we can put those temptations away. Then then I like how Colossians puts it. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians. He talks about, about because of who we are in Christ that we're to respond to him by putting things to death. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says, when Christ, who's your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We have hope, and we want to focus on those things. We want to focus on the fact that we have new life in him, and that we're going to appear with him in glory, but it doesn't end there. Because of those things, because of who we are in Christ, because of the fact that he's made us alive, that we've died to him, he tells us, because you've died, because you're going to be raised in them in glory, because you have an inheritance, he says, then, what's our response? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He goes on to explain some of those things, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Oh, what is he saying? Same thing we've been learning saturated saturate for the last few weeks. Put to death what remains of the old man because you've died to sin and been raised new to Christ and be raised victoriously. Put to death those things because those things are actually idolatry. And he says, On account of those, the wrath of God is being revealed. And that's what we see in judges. The wrath of God is, is coming. And those two you once walked, he says, when you were living in them, and he tells us not to live that way. He says, But now you must put all, put them all away. Anger, wrath, and Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self. You've already put off the old self for this old practices, so continue to put it to death. Because these things are idolatry. You put on the new self, you put off so that we can put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. How will we be renewed? Oh, by those old paths, by staying close, by knowledge of the creator. You know, they, they excuse their sin. And I think we're prone to do the same. I, I, want, I want judges to create this holy desire for us to be living lives holy to God out of worship to him because of what he's done for us. And you think, where's the hope in Judges? At The very end, it says they go back to their inheritance. Look at the very end of the passage. It says, the people of Israel departed from there at the time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. They still had an inheritance that remained. <laughs> That's shocking that God didn't remove their inheritance completely, that they had an inheritance and that, that God had given to them and he was faithful and he would keep their inheritance even though they'd been unfaithful. And here's the other thing that's, that's, that's hopeful about this. It says, in those days. It's past tense in verse 25. It doesn't mean they, they reformed, they changed. We know that from all the kings, there was hardly anyone who was righteous. But what it was saying is in those days, there wasn't a king. They had a future. Ruth was to come next. Boaz and Ruth and Hannah and Samuel and David and there was hope, even though there was no king in those days, there was hope that if they could have a king. There's hope for a real king and a real inheritance. Our true king, our, our, as, we, as we close out the book of Judges, I hope that we see our need for our true king. And that we daily live with an awareness, both of our need for the true king and the fact that our true king is satisfied all that we need. Not just our need for the true king. and We don't want to be sin-focused. No. We want to be Christ focused, our kingly focused. You see, here's here's the thing. Jesus was never led by what seemed right in his own eyes as a man. He was always led by God's word. And in fact, that's how he refutes the devil to begin with. He says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. He was led by God's word. That's what he feasted on. You know, instead of blaming God, Jesus took our blame. Instead of solving problems in earthly ways. Jesus solved our problems by putting sin to death in himself. A solution that no one could come up with. He offered up himself. The Lord of glory offered himself in our place. He solved our problems in his way. Instead of making others pay for sin he paid for our sins. Instead of trying to justify our sins, we can know that he's fully justified us despite our sins. He's our true king. He's the one who vanquishes evil. He's the one who brings us home. He's our true inheritance. That's our hope. Let's live for the king, amen? Let's pray and go ahead and have the band come up and we'll close the song. Father, I pray that the things you would have us learn from the book of Judges would not be lost on us, but I, I pray that it would cause us to, to want to live holy lives close to you, to know you, to draw close to you, to not leave your side, Lord, to, to stay close to your word or to worship you, to, to continually seek your face. And God, I pray that you would give us hope that, that you are our king. Jesus, you are our king. You are the one who enables us because you've put to death sin, because you've paid the price for sin in your death. Lord, because you've justified us, now we can come and we can then, because we've died with you, Jesus, just like we saw in baptism last week, we died in you. Lord, now because of that, we can be raised to new life. And Lord, we can put to death sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us be a, a people who worships you in all of life worships you as our king and longs for your inheritance. God, thank you for your grace. We, we worship you and praise you for your grace, your goodness to us, that you would be so kind that despite our waywardness, despite our repeated sinfulness, you sent your son to take our place, to be our king. That now you call us to live for you and enable us to do that and promise an inheritance. Lord, what grace. May our lives be worshiped to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.